You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. You've bought your tickets. The ushers are about to open the doors. Yes, the projection has smicha is about to start. But first, if you own a retail business and accept credit cards, your customers are getting points, miles, and all sorts of rewards every time they use their card. And you're paying the price. That's why NRS Pay, a product of National Retail Solutions, a division of the IDT Corporation, offers its cash discount program, FeeBuster. You can start accepting credit cards for free. If your business processes over $18,000 a month, you pay no monthly fee and $0 out of your pocket for transaction. This means you, as a retailer, can enjoy the benefits of accepting plastic and your customers still get those crucial miles they crave and need. NRS Pay FeeBuster provides every client with a free credit card reader with no long-term contract, no early termination fee, cancel anytime without a penalty. I'm personally familiar with this company, and they truly stand by their product, and they'll help you with live stateside-based customer service on any issue or question. Visit nrspay.com or call 833-289-2767 to learn more about NRS Pay and the fantastically fair fee buster. Clear the aisles. The projection is Tesmicha. Hi, I'm here with Yitzchak Kolakowski. Love is so overused today, Yitzchak, so I guess anything can be love. But relationships where it's clear the husband and wife um, have a respect for each other and somehow they're able to work within each other. They're able to, they can even have children, um, raise them, have hopes for them, but not necessarily share anything passionate and intense. And of course, we call this perhaps a loveless marriage, a marriage of convenience. There are two films that I want to highlight where those two, that theme is prominent. The first one is Christopher Strong. It's a, a film from 1933, just right before the Hays Code kicks in. It was directed by someone that we've highlighted here before. You might remember Dorothy Arzner the openly lesbian female director who made the film that I recommended before, Merrily We Go to Hell, with Frederick March. Um, this is a film that I consider a, a much, a, a really a superior film to that. It was Catherine Hepburn's really first important starring role. It's, the film is really about her, even though she is not Christopher Strong. <laughs> she has a name also very uh, evocative, Cynthia Darrington. And basically, Christopher Strong is played by someone that you know well, of course, Yitzchuk, uh, the original Dr. Frankenstein, Colin Clive. In this film, Colin Clive, with a little mustache, is Christopher Strong, the title character. And he is an oddity. He's someone who has never had an affair. Now, the film starts in a similar vein to the classic screwball comedy, My Man Godfrey. The idle rich are having a treasure hunt, a scavenger hunt, as it's called, to find strange items. Well, one of the things that they were trying to find here was a man married five years or more that was faithful to his wife and a unmarried girl past 20 who's never had a love affair, meaning a virgin. And that's the way the film starts, that they're running around looking for people. And Colin Clive, his daughter knows, happens to be 
a upright, upstanding man who never would think of having an affair. So she goes, uh, the daughter played by uh, Helen Chandler, she goes uh, and, and, and with her boyfriend, who happens to be married. In other words, she's committing adultery with him. She travels with her boyfriend to get her father to come. And in the most ungodly hour, as this party is going to go on for who knows for how many more hours or days. But she's got to bring her father as a relic of an era that's, that is no longer relevant an era of maybe Victorian marriage where you didn't look at another woman and you understood what the right thing to do was. And the father, Colin Clive, comes and he, Christopher Strong, says, yes, of course, I believe in it. And I'm good to my word. This is what what makes our country great, stability in marriage. And of course, everybody is mocking him because as Dorothy Arzner, even in the other film that I, Barely uh, We Go to Hell, adultery was was quite common. And it was it was considered prudish if you if you minded your spouse being unfaithful. And here was Colin Clive being old fashioned. The boyfriend, the married boyfriend, somehow is uh, is left with a mo- with a motorbike, and he tries to motorbike back to the party. And it's there he gets run off the road by Lady Catherine Cynthia Darrington, played by Catherine Hepburn, and. After she runs him off the road and he tells her that he has to find someone who has never had a love affair, she says, I haven't. And she's very proud of it. Now, who is she? She is some sort of she has royalty, as does Christopher Strong. They're both on the the upper crust of of, of the English gentry. They have titles. What we discover is that she when she shows up. And she proudly says that she's never had a love affair because she's not interested. She cares about something else. She is an aviator. She is part of the new craze of flying. She wants to set records. She can only, and she's famous. She's a darrier. That's why her name is Darrington. And she speaks about her her passion for flight, her passion for her, 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 her that she doesn't care about, she has no time for men, she considers it insignificant. Somehow that sparks in Christopher Strong something that he's never seen. The type of panache, that type of, uh, of energy, the fact of things that she was able to do. And incredibly, instead of going home to be with his wife that he, that he stolidly stands with, and she's played by Billy Burke. Most people know Billy Burke, of course, as Glinda, the good witch. And incredibly, even after giving this speech and berating his daughter for engaging in an adulterous affair, he goes with Cynthia on an airplane jaunt to just fly up in the air and just enjoy themselves in some sort of flight because he's never done that before. And he's never been in such a small craft or in any craft. So right away, of course, the film sets up the the aspects of hypocrisy, the aspects of passion, and Arzner plays this perfectly. And what's what's really great about this film is that Billy Burke in is, is in is in a sense the heroine. She recognizes the connectivity that is occurring between Lady Darrington and her husband, and, and she realizes that that she cannot match her in terms of vibrancy and vitality and accomplishments. 
And as Lady Darrington becomes a quote-unquote family friend, she recognizes that there is indeed flames of passion beginning to stir in her husband that she's never really had. But they've been married comfortably, and they've spoken together, and they've had their child. Now, normally, you would expect her to be the heavy. You'd expect her to plot. You'd expect there to be a confrontation. But there isn't. As much as she knows about the affair, she does not want to destroy that family unit. But what's also so poignant is the fact that his wife realizes, Lady Elaine Strong, Billy Burke, realizes, and she is the one of great strength. Strong himself is a hypocrite. He had lambasted his daughter for being an adulteress. Although the daughter said, no, the man was not in love with his wife anyway. I just stepped in. He anyway hates her and wants to divorce her. And here he was, and, and, and he was extremely open, and, and he didn't blame himself one whit because he believed he was getting something here that he couldn't get anywhere else. And yet, if you would ask him whether he cared and loved for his wife, he did. So this is a film where, you know, it, it isn't, oh, I hate my wife and I just want to be with you. His wife is clearly uh, a, a mother, a, a person of propriety. He, he doesn't want to divorce her. <laughs> so this, this relationship ensues. This relationship abides. Now, again, in, in, in this film, um, there is uh, spoilers ahead now, so you can skip the next two or three minutes. What happens is from that night of passion, Lady Darrington becomes pregnant. And it turns out that, that her pregnancy coincides with the pregnancy of Sir Christopher Strong's daughter. Christopher Strong's daughter has, because of Lady Darrington's advice, she has stayed and she will stay with this man until he gets his divorce. She'll hold true to him. And eventually they get married. And she's now truly happy, the daughter. And the daughter wants to announce to the world that she, that she has a baby. And it's at the same moment that she realizes that she's pregnant and she would like to tell him. And that's the reason why she doesn't want to. The doctors have told her she, she can't endanger her child by trying to set the altitude record. But Billy Burke has a conversation with her and it's the most uh, nuanced conversation. She talks to her at a dinner party and thanks her for being open minded and supporting her daughter when she didn't. That although her daughter was an adulterous relationship, she was after love. And Cynthia understood how important love is and how happiness is embedded with love. And she thanks her for being the mother she couldn't be, but she also thanks her for giving back her daughter to her. And she, in a way, although in a quiet, mousy voice, she indicates that she is still the mother. And there is something here that she should not destroy, that there is a relationship. And now there's going to be a third generation. And that sends her a message that makes it impossible for Lady Cynthia to tell Christopher Strong that she's carrying her child, his child. And instead, she decides to do what tragic heroines always do. She's going to try to beat the altitude record and there is an, a wonderful scene at the end of the film and the special effects there i think you would appreciate as being way ahead of their time 
because her uh, her mechanic tells her that she needs to keep the oxygen mask on and don't take it off. And yet, as she's flying up, and you can see the altimeter indicating how high she's flying, Arzner fills the screen with flashback moments of her relationship with Christopher Strong and what her what Billy Burke, the wife, had said. And in a moment of self-sacrifice, she rips off the oxygen mask and allows herself to really, in a way, uh, succumb. And the plane, therefore, as she becomes unconscious, the, the plane, therefore, um, careens into the ground and crashes. There's, there's great costuming here. Catherine Hepburn goes to a, a costume ball dressed like a, a gypsy moth with antennas and wings, you know, indicating her, her power of flight and what she's attracted to. There's a lot of imagery. There's a lot of what to chew over here. And, and this is the type of film, you know, last week, Yitzchak, you talked about ambiguity. You know, at the end of this film, they build a statue to her for her accomplishment. And yet, as Dorothy Arzner seemed to be saying, that this was a world where women were imprisoned, where there wasn't much of a choice for them. They would have to suffer, as Billy Burke's character did. Or when they realized that they, the men seemed to have it, <laughs> seemed to, to be it seemed to be a, a one-way street with the men having right of way completely so this is a film that i i think really has been overlooked it's it, it could be considered one of the first great feminine tracts and again if you want to see billy burke in a subtle very strong performance uh, i i mentioned before sergeant rutledge which was the last film i think she made and and there she really plays over the top and in Wizard of Oz, she is sort of like a prop. And this film, I think she reflects an aspect of a real aspect of womanhood, along with Catherine Hepburn, who I think really came into her own here. I talked about her other film. We mentioned Spitfire before. She had a film, of course, with Spitfire, which I recommended uh, a couple of years ago. I think some of Kate's early work really stands the test of time, whether it's Little Women I mentioned Holiday, of course, that she played with Cary Grant. You really see Catherine Hepburn, a very special, unique, sort of, again, not a classic beauty, but, you know, her her line readings and uh, her her humor, it, it really is something, uh, it's, 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 it's quite astonishing to behold. She really is uh, uh, like, like, like Icarus in a way. In these films in the 30s, you can see her, her power. This is different than The Blue Angel which, of course, is a classic film that I'm sure you've seen. Sure. So The Blue Angel, which is, a, which is an incredible, I think it's Eric Van Stroheim was the, yeah. was the director. That film is, is, is a tragedy because there you see, a, uh, you know, similarly, the professor who is such a noble character, but he can't help but be drawn by the temptress of the flesh that is Marlena Dietrich. And that really shows you that's similar to the the Talmudic passage of the Chassid who felt he was beyond any sort of being uh, being tempted. I think it, it, Christopher Strong is interesting because Cynthia Darrington is not just a, a temptress. She is a, a fully realized, idiosyncratic, powerful person. And, 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 and she doesn't need men. She doesn't think she wants men. But there's something about the attention that she's getting from Christopher, from Clive's character, that somehow cracks her shell. 
but I think that the reason why she can go up in that plane is because of her other aspect. The Marlena Dietrich character in the in the Blue Angel is basically a demonic force, right? In other words, this is what I do. I I ruin people. I'm a woman, and and I ruin people. That's what women do. I think this film, you know, it's 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 more balanced. It, it's not it's not as much of a open morality play as that your Shalmi and as as the Blue Angel. So it, it really. You know, you, you sort of wonder, is Catherine Hepburn an evil person? Is this an evil thing that's happening? Should we consider it evil when he's in a loveless marriage? So I, I think that's part of really the question that really overflows into this other film, the film that I did not want to see, because I thought it was, uh, when I heard about it, oh, it's about, what, what is this, like Father of the Bride? Uh, it's called The Catered Affair. It was filmed in 1956 by Richard Brooks, I love Richard Brooks's Elmer Gantry. I've talked about it and praised it on this platform. Uh, Richard Brooks is a, was a very talented director. But this film, it never appealed to me because I figured, okay, what, I want to see a movie about, about making a wedding, like, like, you know, like with Debbie Reynolds. Plus, the two leads seem to be, and I said this to you earlier today, and you agreed with me, could you ever think of two more mismatched leads than Betty Davis and Ernest Borgnine? <laughs> you know, like, like if you think we talk about Catherine Hepburn's line readings, the the second diva-like actress after Catherine Hepburn was, of course, Betty Davis. Seems almost like something that would happen in real life. Sometimes you see these mis- mis- mismatched couples, and you wonder how they get together. You know, right. like- what's interesting though is Betty Davis, who had just a couple of years earlier made a, a film called All About Eve, where she played the very glamorous Margot Channing. In this film, only made about five years later, Betty Davis, you know, used fat makeup. Uh, she pumped stuff up into her into her arms, and and she attempts a Irish accent. It's not exactly you know, she isn't exactly Meryl Streep in her ability to adapt to all or Nicole Kidman even in terms of being able to speak any sort of dialect in any sort of way. She still sounds like Betty Davis. Her words come out exactly the same way. And Ernest Borgnine sounds like Ernest Borgnine, but they play a, a couple whose daughter tells them that she wants to get married in this in the most private, quiet ceremony without any fuss, without any relatives, a civil ceremony, almost. Actually, there's going to be a priest there, but just barely. The the actress who plays their daughter is Debbie Reynolds. I, of course, recommended on this platform one of Debbie Reynolds' first films, uh, Singing in the Rain. And I mentioned what I thought was Debbie Reynolds' uh, weakness in that film. But here she shines. She really does a, a very fine job. And I think I related to this, I don't know if you would, Yitzchuk, as a a family that never had much a, 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 a like a middle, and that's really why this is a, a, a very interesting film. The marriage that that's clearly loveless is the marriage between Ernest Borgnine, the cab driver, who comes in every night after doing an all night trip, and Betty Davis, who is his wife. Who's get this? It's like Barry Fitzgerald is her is her older brother, who's a bachelor who's been living for twelve years. On their in, in their apartment on a, a rollaway couch. There's another son, 
And there's also mention of a, of a third child who has died in Korea recently. In other words, this is a family that has little. They have an apartment without any light fixtures. The light fixtures are just are just extension cords that are pulled across the room with a, a, a naked bulb hanging down in the middle. <laughs> I've lived in many basement apartments in my yeshiva days like that. And although they try to live with some dignity, it's clear that Debbie Reynolds's fiance played in a very subdued fashion by Rod Taylor. And of course, Rod Taylor, four or five years later, you couldn't get enough of him. Of course, he was in The Time Machine and The Birds, uh, many other films as a, uh, you know, as a hunky leading man. Over here, he plays a uh, an intellectual soft guy, always wearing his glasses. And he is the, the young man who has had a three-year relationship, clearly with a lot of love. And now they want to get married. What this stirs into Betty Davis's role, Aggie, as she plays, that now she recognizes in the love that she sees in her daughter, the lack of love of her own life. She remembers the fact, and she says in, uh, that she had been sort of given away. Her husband, Ernest Borgnine's character, had been paid 300 dollars or something to agree to marry her, seemingly because she was older and she couldn't find anyone. And, and, and this has haunted their marriage. They've also, as, as much as they've struggled, they've never been able to have their own apartment. They, they, he's, he's driving a cab and he's trying to save as much money as he can to put down money for a medallion. Uh, in order to own his own cabs, that he can be his own balabas, so to speak, to to be his own boss. And and when they meet Rod Taylor's parents, they sense the snobbery, the condescension that's emanating from them when they offer that they will maybe perhaps pay if they can't afford to pay it, and maybe they can make a bigger event. Well, at that moment, something snaps in Betty Davis's character. And she throws caution to the wind, and she then pushes for a catered affair uh, with hundreds of guests and no with with a limousines to bring the guests. There's a wonderful scene with the wedding planner where, again, the wedding planner, of course, is showing them all these deals, and they don't have any money, but they're embarrassed to admit that, to say that. And the type of class differences are, are, are so stark and the struggle against being put down, not to say that they're on the dole, not to say that they are, are welfare uh, recipients, which they're not. They're just barely making it. In fact, what she does is incredible. She has given her brother room and board for free for 12 years. They've done great acts of kindness, but they feel insignificant. She feels unloved, and she feels she hasn't really been able, because of the lack of love that has been emanating between her and her husband, she hasn't been able to radiate love to her child. This is what she blames herself. And there are a number of conversations where she's trying to have the the mother and daughter talk that one needs to have. And everything she says about marriage is, it's going to be tough. 
It's not going to be a bed of roses. It's going to be hard. But you know what? I want to give you a, a beautiful wedding so you'll have something good to remember after everything gets hard, after everything becomes difficult, after you're going to have to suffer. And she, in a way, is 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 downloading, distilling the pain and hurt of her life into this wedding plan. And that's why this screenplay by Patty Chayefsky is so brilliant. It was a uh, a Goodyear Theater Hour presentation uh, in 1955, just like Marty had been, also written by Patty Chayefsky, and also starring Ernest Borgnine. And when Hollywood uh, wanted, and that's what they were doing, Yitzchak, in that time, and just like now, Hollywood looks to the successful comic book franchises in order to use CGI effects to make blockbusters. In the 1950s, when Hollywood was looking to expand, as we talked about when we talked about Rod, the Rod Serling teleplay patterns, they did the same thing here. Marty became a film, of course, Ernest Borgnine wins the Academy Award, and they felt that they can do the same thing with the catered affair. Most critics dismiss this film, uh, they consider it a just a strange oddity in Betty Davis's life. I I, I give her a, 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 an A for effort, and eventually you sort of forget that it's Betty Davis. It's hard to forget because you know, despite the makeup and the dowdiness, you, it's hard to forget. Ernie has his scene, uh, and, and it's like we've talked about this off pod. Ernest Borgnine, from the time he sort of exploded into Hollywood's uh, theaters in the 1950s as, you know, as, as, as an as a actor who could carry a film like in Marty, he worked almost continuously till his mid-90s. Now, the truth is, after the 1950s, he pretty much played secondary roles during the 1960s, despite the very popular sitcom, McHale's Navy, which made a star not out of Ernest Borgnine, who already had his laurels, but out of Tim Conway. Tim Conway was recognized as a major comedic talent because of McHale's Navy, but McHale's Navy would never have been made and would never really been able to be carried without Ernest Borgnine's quote-unquote star power. But after McHale's Navy was canceled, you know, he, he, he appeared in a number of different roles, usually Emperor of the North, and I mentioned to you before a film I was very surprised you hadn't seen, considering your penchant for monster films, which, of course, is Willard, the story of a uh, a, a psycho child who becomes uh, you know, obsessed with rats. And uh, I think I think if you take a look on some of the uh, Internet lists, you'll talk about some of the most ghoulish deaths of any character. And Ernie gets his. Uh, in there, of course, he was in the wild. Of course, he was in the wild bunch, and uh, the Peckinpah uh, violent uh, <laughs> feast. But he basically, you know, he, he sort of played pretty much the same jlubby character. Sometimes, I guess, you could feel he was all right, but most of the time, he played a vicious, grub, violent person. And it's 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 interesting how he was sort of able to to keep on having a career from it, and especially you know what he wasn't a, like I said, not a matinee idol in, in any way, shape, or form. He never tried to lose any weight, and yet 
having him in a film usually meant you were going to get a pretty damn good performance from him. Well, Yitzchak, speaking about grotesques <laughs> who somehow make it, you have a, a, a one of the greatest of the grotesques who is even bigger than Ernie himself, Gojira himself, known, of course, to American audiences as Godzilla, the Japanese creation, the, the greatest, maybe the greatest movie monster of all time. Well, this weekend, there's going to be a, a Godzilla festival at the Mahoning Drive-In Theater, which is near the Allentown, Bethlehem, that area. And uh, and it's going to start Thursday night. And I'm planning to go Thursday night with, with my mishpocha to go see the first movie that they're showing there in 35 millimeter film, which was the first Godzilla movie that I had ever seen. And I think that a lot of Americans had seen and very different than the um, than the original classic film. This was originally made in 1973 in Japan, Gojira Rai uh, Megaru. And in America was released three years later as Godzilla versus Megalon. Uh, the New York Times uh, uh, review noted how the dragon became St. George, that uh, this was really the film that, really solidified Godzilla, not as the monster, but rather as a superhero. And this was really a, a children's film, again, much, much different than, of course, the first Godzilla movie, which is a very dark, serious, and, and, and very well-made film. This was just more of, a, you know, a kiddie movie. This was the first one where Godzilla was not played by someone who I did also get to meet. The original Godzilla was Harua Nakajima, but he had retired by that point and was and they had someone else playing Godzilla in the costume and you really felt the superhero vibe let me let, let me read this synopsis here which it sounds completely inane an inventor creates a humanoid robot named Jet Jaguar that is seized by the undersea nation of Cetopia using Jet Jaguar as a guide the Cetopians send Megalon as vengeance for the nuclear tests that have devastated their society. Now, Megalon is a giant beetle, but they also send Gigan, who's going to destroy along with Megalon. So there's a, that is it the same robot decides that he doesn't want to be an accomplice to the destruction of the world. So somehow that robot gets Godzilla to fight these other two. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. And the robot manages to make himself giant size, meaning he starts off as a as a human sized robot and somehow he develops uh, artificial intelligence, it would seem, and he and he programs himself to grow into a giant size, you know, the same size as Godzilla. And the two of them kind of have this tag team wrestling battle be, between you know, Godzilla and Jet Jaguar are the good guys, and Megalon and Gigan, who was in the previous film, Godzilla vs. Gigan, a monster from outer space, which has a, has a, uh, a beak like an eagle and uh, fins on his back, somewhat like a Dimetrodon, and a buzzsaw stomach, and uh, you know, just claws for hands. And uh, these two. Uh, these and two Godzilla is really more like a, like a sort of like a dinosaur, right? Is that the way Godzilla always looks? Yeah, Godzilla is more or less like a somewhat of like a tyrannosaurus with 
it's Dirachosaurus fins on its back, you know, mm-hmm. plate back. That's and it and it and he breathes out fire. Yitzchak, why why does the um, movie poster have them on top of the twin towers? My theory on that of why the American poster, a lot of these posters were very strange for all in different countries. There were all kinds of strange posters that were made. The poster, I believe, was because this is released in 1976, which was the same year that Dino De Laurentiis made the remake. I don't know if you can even call it a remake. <laughs> I, I don't. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not a fan of that movie at all. But in '76, King Kong, of course, the the climax is on the world on the World Trade Center, and so I think that's why they have the two posters on top of the World Trade Center. I see. In other words, the, because the, the World Trade Center had become the main attraction as opposed to the Empire State Building. I understand the original Grajira Godzilla. He sort of is created after these atomic testings that somehow bring him back to life or create him or however that happens. But over here, why should he be protecting the surface world? Why did why does he become a superhero? Well, already several films before that we see his conversion was, um, there was a, a movie, uh, I guess about 10 years earlier called Ghidra, the three headed monster where a monster from space is attacking and Mothra comes to try to stop this monster and Mothra asks Rodan and Godzilla to help her in this fight and there uh, and there there's you know kind of the peanut gallery of the the Greek chorus of the two little fairy girls who ex- translate the whole conversation between Mothra and Godzilla and Rodan who at that point were bad guys Mothra is a giant moth that's sometimes a caterpillar and sometimes an adult moth and Rodan is a a pterosaur, pterodactyl, giant pterodactyl. And uh, so basically Mothra was the one who converted Godzilla and Rodan to be good guys, to to protect the Earth from attacks from outer space and other places. So that's mm-hmm. pretty much, you know, the, the arc. By this, by this time, he was really a superhero. I mean, in, in the 1970s, really is when things really started to change. It got a lot more campy. There was first, because originally they had planned that Destroy All Monsters, which was, I believe, released in 1969, which featured all the Toho monsters. That was supposed to be the final Godzilla movie. But then they decided, you know, we can make money on these movies. This particular movie cost a little bit more than a million dollars to make and grossed more than $20 million. So they they had a good formula to make money, whether whether or not it was, you know, it wasn't the the great classic film that the original Godzilla was, but it was something that made a lot of money. Look, someone who is not into the whole pantheon of these monsters and knows their backstory, can they enjoy this film? If if someone enjoys, there's not a tremendous continuity from one film to the next. So if it, 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 it stands alone on its own, this is the movie that, again, I think it was the movie that I remember when I was probably four years old, taped off of Channel 5, a late night showing. I set up the VCR and I was very excited because I'd heard of Godzilla, but never actually seen a Godzilla movie. And when I heard this Godzilla versus Megalon, that sounds cool. And I remember having that tape as a child, you know, that I had taped off of off of television and then. This episode was featured on Mystery Science Theater 3000 and actually was in the opening credits 
the scene where Godzilla is riding on his tail, floating through the sky in a very strange way to to, to kind of do an attack on Megalon, where where Jet Jaguar is holding Megalon and Godzilla slides on his tail to kick him with both feet in the air. Uh, unlike your the, the film that you love so much, King Kong, this film primarily relies on not miniatures and stop motion, but actors in 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 crazy looking suits, right? Yeah, that that was pretty much throughout the Godzilla franchise until I would say the American remake of Godzilla 1998 was the first time when they switched to CGI, and since then, you know, there's been more CGI. But Godzilla pretty much was practical effects done with with uh, some people call suitmation, even though it's not really animation. It's just men in suits with miniatures but uh and like i said i i had met the man i have his autograph he passed away a few years ago the one who did play godzilla the original in 1954 until the one just the year before in 1972 so this so this film if if i can be so bold it really is a touchstone for you it's it takes you back to your toddlerhood when you were just becoming this freakazoid geek movie lover and therefore it, it you you hold it dear to yourself it's you this is this is your childhood this film the fact that it still exists is sort of a vindication for your i guess you know your obsession and connection to film yeah i, I probably i probably saw king kong before this to be honest uh because i think because i remember my father actually taped that on his own you know so that that i i had on tape earlier and 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 this movie i think again like i said this was probably the first godzilla movie most americans saw and it was the most seen godzilla movie in america there was a very famous showing i think the first television showing it was a primetime showing and they had jim belushi uh hosting the 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 showing in probably in nineteen seventy seven or seventy eight you know and it and in prime time it was a very big deal again even though it was a re- it's a very silly movie it's a very childish movie main character is a child with his older brother and his older brother's friend we don't we don't really understand we don't get exactly what their relationship is that the older brother and his friend again we've talked in the past why the Japanese felt. You know, connected this. I mean, the Japanese filmmaking in the 1950s, if you have Kurosawa and others, and then you have Godzilla, there's, there's so much out of a defeated nation, a nation rebuilding itself, a nation with a proud history. You know, there, there's so much really to analyze as to why, you know, Godzilla became sort of the symbol of Japanese film. You know, again, we, we can only speculate. I don't know that much about Japanese culture, but I do know that, that the, specter of nuclear war what happened in hiroshima and nagasaki had very large ripple effect and uh, the world that that godzilla strode into was definitely a world that had been changed and altered and you know japan itself was reforming itself into something and it's interesting i think by the 70s and 80s japan itself became sort of like a godzilla you know, Japan became, you know, it's in terms of its automaking, in terms of its production of uh, electronics made in Japan, 
you know, Japan was outstripping the United States in so many ways. So I remember when I was a child, I said something to my mother about, you know, America being a superpower. And my mother said, no, no, Japan is a superpower now. You know, that was that was the, the, the way Americans looked at Japan, you know, how things turned around. And, and that's also in a certain way, it's a tribute to America that it shows how ready we are to, to forget about how they sure. attack. Well, definitely. Well, not only were we compassionate in helping them rebuild, but we bought all their products and we imported Godzilla and other things. And they show you can um, plant within your children as we approach the anniversary of the Declaration of Independence on July 4th. You can plant in them, you know, good old American values like <laughs> watching a Japanese movie and liking it. Everybody, watch your step on the way out. It's cook. Enjoy the drive-in. Take care, everybody. Be well. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 